1521, a young, a young Martin Luther was called before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, for a formal meeting, which was referred to as a diet in the city of Worms. He was called to the Diet of Worms uh, because of his teaching, which was spreading through the publishing of his books. And in these books, he was challenging the papacy, the practices of the papacy, the teaching of the papacy. And he was calling on people to trust in the authority of Scripture. Luther thought he would have a chance to defend his ideas at the Diet of Worms. But Charles would only accept a full recanting of his teaching and the challenges of the papacy. A lot was at stake for Luther. He had already been excommunicated from the church. And at the Diet of Worms, he was at risk of being declared an outlaw of the state, forfeiting life and property. Church historian Dr. Scott Hendricks writes, Luther's speech was not a defiant, solitary protest, but a calm, reasoned account of why he had written the books piled on the table before him and why he could not recant their content. Robert Godfrey said, Luther then delivered one of the most important speeches in the history of the church. We have no full text of the speech, but we do have several accounts from various observers, and so I have quite a detailed record of what he said. But ironically, we are not certain about one of the most quoted and well-known statements in the address. Here I stand, I can do no other. Not all accounts include this declaration, and many historians doubt that Luther actually said it. But we do know that he stood there before the powers of the world and the church with remarkable courage and commitment. He might not have said, here I stand, but he did indeed stand. And what we do know that he said was this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis. My conscience is captive to the word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me. Amen. He indeed took a stand. He took a stand for God's word knowing that it would be costly for him. When we see others live their lives in a way that is good and right, we are oftentimes encouraged to do the same. When we witness courageous acts, we are inspired to be courageous. When we are given examples of people who are selfless, humble, and generous, living sacrificially for the sake of others, we feel compelled to follow that example. Indeed, Martin Luther inspired many people to be bold and to be courageous, to place their confidence in God's word commendable and inspiring examples are good for us. The author of Hebrews understood this. At the end of chapter 10, the author of Hebrews exhorted the Hebrew Christians not to shrink back, but to live by faith and endure trials. Indeed, they were facing trials. They had suffered because of their faith. And yet the author of Hebrews called upon them to endure, to hold fast to Jesus, 
to remain confident in the truth of the gospel, that God would indeed fulfill all of his promises. And then in chapter 11, he provided them with examples of heroes of the faith who had gone before them, who had endured, who had remained faithful to the Lord despite the costs. Chapter 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. The author of Hebrew looked to, past, looked to the past to remind Christians of commendable examples who had gone before them in order to inspire, encourage, and strengthen them. He was saying, remember, remember their endurance because of God's faithfulness. It is a wonderful thing to look back, to look back on heroes of the faith. It's good to do so by looking to Scripture. It's also good to do so by looking to church history. It is wonderfully encouraging to read biographies of saints who have gone before us, who lived lives of faith, trusting in the Lord, living for Him regardless of the cost. We have wonderful biographies in our bookstore downstairs available for purchase that will stir up your faith. It is good to look to the past, the heroes of the faith, but we also have heroes of the faith living among us. We have heroes of the faith in our midst, people who have followed Jesus for many years, who have followed him, who've held fast to him, who have served faithfully, who have given generously, who have been willing to sacrifice for the sake and the good of others. Back on December 18th, Colleen Brown had the opportunity to share her testimony here on a Sunday morning. If you didn't have an opportunity to hear that, I'd encourage you to go back and listen. Go back and listen to the sermon from December 18th and hear Colleen's testimony. Colleen is a hero of the faith living among us who has endured trials and suffering and held fast to Jesus. We also have some who have lived among us and have gone on to glory. I consider Lois Glover, who went home this past week to be with the Lord, a hero of the faith. She was steadfast in the Lord, did not waver, believed in him, was confident in him, trusted that he would be faithful to deliver on all his promises. We have had several saints from our church family go home to be with the Lord. Lois's husband, John, went home in January 2017. Colleen Brown's husband, Charlie, went to be with the Lord in October of 2020. And our dear sister, Susan Alps, went home to be with the Lord in July of 2022. All four of them provided commendable examples of faith. They had joy in the Lord as they held fast to Jesus and the gospel. Indeed, we will not forget them, but we will remember their examples and be encouraged to persevere and endure in our faith as they did. I also hope we will be greatly encouraged as we spend the next three weeks in Hebrews chapter 11 recalling heroes of the faith and what made them heroes of the faith that we might follow in their steps. Our sermon text this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. If you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 11. Three things we'll see in our passage are the nature of faith, the necessity of faith, and examples of faith. The nature, the necessity, and examples of faith. I'm going to read Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. 
Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Our passage answers a few important questions for us, including what is faith? Why do we need it? And what does it look like? First, what is faith? In verse one, we are not given a comprehensive definition of faith, but we are given the essence of faith. Faith is described as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. This includes things in the past we were not there to witness and future events we look forward to with hope, which have obviously not yet come to pass. Creation is a perfect example of a conviction regarding something not seen, which has taken place in the past. You were not there. I was not there. There were, new, there, there were no eyewitnesses. There's no video recording. We did not see it, yet God has revealed that he is the creator of everyone and everything. He alone is self-existent. He alone is eternal. Everything else has been brought into existence by him, by his word. Scripture begins with God creating the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. Understanding that God is the creator of everyone and everything is foundational to the rest of Scripture. It's foundational to our understanding of the world and humanity. It is foundational to our understanding of the gospel. If God is not the creator of everyone and everything, then the rest of Scripture is pointless. God is not who he says he is. We don't really need to listen to his commands. We don't need to fear judgment. We don't owe ourselves, our lives, to him. If God is not the creator of everyone and everything, we lose the gospel. The doctrine of creation is essential to our understanding of God, the world, and the gospel, yet we were not there to witness it. We must have faith by taking God at his word. Because of the importance of this doctrine, it is not surprising 
that the doctrine of creation is critiqued so forcefully by many. We see this in popular culture and in academia. Carl Sagan said, the cosmos is all there is, all there has been, and all there ever will be. This belief is assumed by many. And this belief is usually the presupposition by which many approach science. Oftentimes, science is approached with naturalistic presuppositions, that there is no God, there is no intelligent being who brought things into existence. And so if you think about, talk about the origins of the universe in naturalistic, with naturalistic language, it's called science. If you talk about the origins of the universe by talking about God, it's considered religion. Do you see the difference there? The reality is we do need faith to understand that the world was made by God. That's not to say there's no evidence pointing to a creator and revealing that the universe was created. God has graciously provided many, many, many examples that our world, the universe, our planet, our solar system, animals and human beings come from an intelligent being. There is tons of evidence of intelligent design. God has revealed himself in creation. He has revealed his creative power in creation. If you want to know more about that, I'd encourage you to talk to A.J. Stedford, who's one of our elders. If you don't know A.J., he is a science teacher at Cedar Park Christian High School. He is the science teacher you want your kids to have. <laughs> A.J. is brilliant, and he studies this stuff. He enjoys studying this stuff, and he would be happy to talk to you at lengths about the wonderful evidence in creation pointing to God's creative power and design. So we need faith to be confident in things we have not seen which have taken place in the past. This, of course, includes creation, but it includes other things as well. It includes what we read about the flood. It includes what we read about the Passover. It includes what we read about God's revelation, the covenants that he established. It includes what we read about historically about the kings. It includes what we read about the prophecies that were made thousands of years ago. We need faith to believe these things that we have not witnessed that have taken place in the past and bear tremendous weight for our lives, our faith, and our future. Faith is also the assurance of things hoped for that have not come to pass. In John 14, Verses 2 and 3, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. In Revelation, we are given a beautiful picture of our future with the Lord. In Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 4, we read, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What wonderful promises we have in God's word regarding our future. Jesus prepares a home for us. We will experience the new heavens and the new earth with him for all of eternity, where there will be no more pain, no more tears, no more death. Brothers and sisters, this is the vision we need to continually keep before us. We need to continually remind ourselves of our wonderful and glorious future. And we must have faith that these things are true, that they will come to pass. Again, I think of our Dear Sister Lois, I've had numerous conversations with people this past week who said, whereby people said she was ready. She wanted to go to heaven. She was not afraid of death. She wanted to be with the Lord. She had assurance that it was true. Not doubt mixed with a vague sense of hope. It was assurance, confidence. When I die, it will be with the Lord and it will be better. Similarly, when I had the opportunity to sit with dear sister Susan Alps the week before she died, she looked forward to being with the Lord. She had assurance that she would be with him and it would be glorious. Faith is demonstrated by our confidence in the truthfulness of God's word. Assurance of what we hope for. Secondly, why do we need faith? We've already seen that we need faith for understanding. A right knowledge of the world. A right knowledge of humanity a right knowledge of how we relate to God requires faith. We need faith for understanding and knowledge. More importantly, we need faith to please God. In verse 6, we read that without faith, it is impossible to please God. God is faithful. God is true. God is trust worthy. He never lies, and he never fails to deliver on his promises. It is unacceptable, therefore, to approach God with anything less than confidence in him. When we do not have faith that he is whom he says he is, that his words are true, and that he is faithful to fill his promises, then we are implying by our lack of faith that he is not trustworthy. 
a lack of faith betrays the truth about God's character and nature. When you read through the Gospels, you will find numerous instances where the crowds were amazed by Jesus. They heard his teaching and were amazed by the authority by which he taught. They witnessed his miracles and were amazed by these powerful deeds. But there are only two times where we read in the Gospels that Jesus was amazed. One instance is in Luke chapter 7, where a centurion's servant had fallen ill. And the people who appreciated, the Jewish people who appreciated the centurion, called for Jesus to come and heal him. And so Jesus was going to heal the centurion's servant, but he sent a messenger to Jesus saying, Lord, you don't need to come. Just say the word, and he'll be healed. I know, because I too am a man of authority. When I say something, people do it. I know that all you have to do is say the word, and my servant would be healed. Confidence. Confidence in Jesus. We read in Luke 7 that when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. In other words, he was amazed. He marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. This is one instance where we read that Jesus was amazed or that he marveled at someone's faith. The other instance where Jesus was amazed, where he marveled, is found in Luke chapter, or I'm sorry, Mark chapter 6. And this is where Jesus went back to his hometown of Nazareth to teach but he was not well received. Unlike the centurion, the people of his hometown did not have confidence in him. They're like, we know you. We know you. Who do you think you are? You're not better than us. And we read that in Mark 6, 5, and 6, he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He was amazed because of their unbelief. The two times that Jesus marveled was one instance of faith and one instance of unbelief. Commenting on these passages, Kevin DeYoung writes, does Jesus ever marvel at you or me? I think when he sees his people trusting in the midst of extreme suffering, he marvels. When he sees people from the roughest backgrounds come to him with Broken-hearted humility, he marvels. When he sees you give up comfort and security for the sake of his kingdom, he marvels. But on the other hand, I fear he may marvel at us for the wrong reasons sometimes. I think Jesus marvels at some of us who sit under the preaching of the word and enjoy the fellowship of the saints and know all the Bible stories and still there's no zeal for Christ, no desire to grow in him, no effort to put him first. He concludes, Nazareth is a warning to us. Familiarity can breed spectacular unbelief. 
The centurion, on the other hand, is a ray of hope. Even the unlikeliest among us sometimes believe in both cases, Jesus marvels. Brothers and sisters, we want Jesus to marvel at us for the right reasons. We want to be those with strong faith. We don't want to be those who are characterized by a lack of faith. We need faith to please God. Ultimately, we need faith to take hold of eternal life. Faith involves entrusting ourselves to Jesus, taking him at his word, staking our lives on his gospel. In John eleven twenty five to 26, Jesus said, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. We want to be those who are certain that though we die, we will live with Christ for all of eternity. And whatever we might lose in this world, whether it be money, possessions, safety, health, or even our lives, is not, does not compare to what we gain with Christ in his kingdom for all of eternity. There is no salvation apart from faith in Christ. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we need faith to understand. We need faith to please God, and we need faith to be saved and take hold of eternal life. Finally, what does it look like? In verse 4, the author begins to provide us with what ends up being a long list of commendable heroes of the faith. The three examples in verses 4 through 7 are Abel, Enoch, and Noah. The story of Cain and Abel is found in Genesis chapter 4. Cain was the firstborn son of Adam and Eve, and Abel was their second son. Cain was a worker of the ground, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep. Both brought offerings to the Lord. But the Lord did not regard Cain's offering. He accepted Abel's offering, but not Cain's. A lot of people have offered reasons why Cain's offering was not accepted, but the text does not specifically say why his offering was not accepted. But from Genesis 4 and Hebrews 11, we can conclude that he did not approach the Lord the right way with the right heart. In Genesis 4, 7, the Lord confronted Cain after his offering was not accepted. And he said to him, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. In other words, the Lord gave him an opportunity to repent. The Lord called on him to do well so that his offering would be accepted. And he warned him about what would happen if he did not repent. He called on him to do well. And if Cain's heart was right with the Lord, he would have been grieved. He would have said, no, Lord, I want to do well. I want to do well. I'll repent. 
I'll do things the right way. But that's not what happened with, with Cain. No. Sin, crouching at the door, mastered him. He did not repent and seek to do well with the Lord. Instead, he murdered his brother out of jealousy and envy. When the Lord confronted him, he said, where's your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? No sorrow over what he had done. The answer to that question, by the way, is yes. You are your brother's keeper. But Cain's heart was not with the Lord, so he did not repent. On the other hand, Abel approached the Lord with faith. He loved the Lord. His heart was with the Lord. And he brought his offering to the Lord with faith. Now, someone might say, well, what good did Abel's faith do him? He got murdered. What was the point? What was the benefit? He had faith in the Lord. He approached him the right way. His offering was good and right. And it led to an untimely and violent death. A lot of good that faith in the Lord did for him. Last week I mentioned Polycarp. Polycarp was a leader in the early church who was uh, burned to death because of his faith. He would not back down. He would not recant. And he was put to death in a terrible and awful way. You might think the same thing about Polycarp. Well, what good did his faith do him? He died in a horrible way. Maybe you're tempted to have similar thoughts regarding your life. Lord, I have faith. I've trusted you. Where has it gotten me? What good has it done? I'm unhappy with my circumstances. My life's not what I want it to be. I'm not where I'm at in life like I thought I would be. What good is my faith? God, I'm serving you, and yet all these bad things keep happening. What you must understand is that faith in the Lord does not mean you're going to have ideal circumstances in this life, but you'll get something far better. Whatever you're upset about not getting is silly and trivial compared to what the Lord offers you. Oh, brothers and sisters, when we complain and gripe and feel sorry for ourselves because of our life circumstances, because our, things aren't happening the way we want, because we're not getting the things that we desire, we're missing it. We're missing the big picture. We're lacking faith in the promises of God. Faith in Christ does not mean you're going to have an easy life here and now. It doesn't mean it's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. But faith in the Lord changes your perspective on trials and suffering here and now. In James 1, 2, and 4, we read, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and this and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, trials are a good thing 
because they grow and strengthen our faith when we keep our eyes on the Lord and lead to something far better than an easy, pain-free life. But you must have faith to believe that. You must have faith to have a, a right perspective on trials and suffering. Faith changes your perspective on death. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul, describing, Paul described death as gain. For a Christian, when you die, you gain something far better. He said, I'm torn between a desire to continue living and ministering the gospel and going home to be with the Lord. He said, to be clear, I'm not torn between these things because they're equally good. To depart and be with Christ is far better. There's no comparison. The only reason he was torn is because this life was the only opportunity to tell others about Christ before he went home. To depart and to be with the Lord is far better. Faith in Christ changes your perspective on trials and suffering. It changes your perspective on death. So for Abel, it was far better to approach the Lord with faith even though it led to his violent and untimely death than to be Cain, who sinned against the Lord and lived longer. Moreover, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. His life and death were not meaningless. The Lord still speaks through his faith. It remains a testimony, an encouragement for believers even today. The second example is Enoch. Enoch appears very briefly in the book of Genesis. We read about his father, Jared, and then we read in Genesis 5, 21 through 24, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. The thing that stands out about this short episode is Enoch's close relationship with God. Later in Scripture, God spoke of Israel's need to walk in his ways as the means of staying in right relationship with him. Enoch walked with God, meaning he walked in his ways and enjoyed close, intimate, personal fellowship with God. The Lord, growing in your faith, trusting in the Lord, and walking in his ways will lead to closer fellowship with him. Do you desire this? Do you desire to enjoy close fellowship with the Lord? At the end of Hebrews 10, the author exhorts the readers, draw near to God. Draw near to him. Enjoy close, personal, intimate fellowship with him. To do this, you must approach him by faith. You must believe that he exists. You must believe that he rewards those who seek him, who entrust themselves to him. If you are not enjoying close fellowship 
with the Lord, I encourage you to draw near to him by faith. The third example is Noah. Noah lived among a wicked and perverse generation. He lived in a world that was full of violence, that was riddled with sin, a world in complete and utter rebellion against God. But Noah did not go along with the sinful ways of the world around him. Instead, he walked with the Lord and found favor in his sight. The Lord, the Lord warned him of the judgment coming to earth, whereby he would flood the earth. Noah believed him. He took God at his word. What a perfect illustration of faith. He had never seen a flood. This was unseen, unheard of. This was something new. The Lord said, I'm going to do this thing that never has happened, that no one's ever seen. And Noah said, okay, I believe you. I'll take you at your word. And he proved and demonstrated his faith by building an ark, by building a huge boat, not right next to the ocean. He built it inland. Can you imagine how crazy he looked in the eyes of the world? What is this man doing? What is he thinking? Look at all the time and the energy and the resources he put into building this ark. Can you imagine the things that people said about him? Can you imagine the things that people said to him? Can you imagine how they made fun of him, how they ridiculed him, how they mocked him? Yet, in spite of how crazy it looked in the eyes of the world, in spite of how futile his efforts seemed, in spite of the ridicule, he took God at his word and he obeyed. Faith leads to radical obedience. What was foolish in the eyes of the world was wisdom from the Lord. And what was the result of Noah's faith and his radical obedience? The salvation of him and his family and the condemnation of the world. In the flood, we see judgment and salvation. The judgment of the world and the salvation of Noah and his family. We, th we see these things together throughout Scripture. Judgment and salvation. Think of the Passover in the book of Exodus when the people of Israel were enslaved by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. The Lord brought judgment on Egypt. What happened in the Passover? The firstborn, the firstborn son of every family in Egypt was put to death. Yet the Lord passed over the people of Israel who took refuge under the blood of the lamb. They trusted the Lord. They took him at his word. They did what he said. They put blood on their doorposts of their house and the Lord passed over. The people of Egypt were judged. The people of Israel were saved. Judgment and salvation. Noah and his family took refuge in the ark. The people of Israel took refuge under the blood of the lamb in their house. At the cross, we see the ultimate example of judgment and salvation. Jesus Christ went to the cross to take the judgment, the punishment for the sins of his people. He experienced judgment, the wrath of God 
for our sins so that we can be saved. And now everyone who takes refuge in Jesus under his blood is saved. Judgment and salvation. And there will be a time of final judgment. At the final judgment, when Jesus returns, he will separate those who will experience eternal judgment and those who will experience eternal life. Judgment and salvation. Those who are saved are those who put their faith in the Lord, who trust him, who believe his word, who believe that he will be faithful to fulfill all his promises. The good news, the gospel, is that though we all deserve judgment, every single one of us deserves punishment for our sins, God has provided a way of salvation. Just as God provided a way of salvation for Noah and his family, just as God provided a way of salvation for the people of Israel, God has provided a way of salvation for us. And it's in Jesus Christ. Friend, if you are not a Christian, I urge you to believe in Christ and be saved. You see, you are in need of a Savior just like the rest of us. You have sinned and have fallen short of God's standards just like the rest of us. No one here is a Christian because they are more moral than others. Everyone who is a Christian is a Christian because they have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, you need salvation. You need to be forgiven of your sins so that you can be reconciled to God, so that you can enjoy being with the Lord in his glorious kingdom for all of eternity. I urge you to believe in Christ and be saved. The examples in chapter 11 are meant to inspire and encourage us. They are meant to strengthen our faith so that we endure trials without losing our confidence in the Lord, his word, and the truth of the gospel. What is the evidence of faith in your life? How is your confidence in the Lord, your assurance that he's going to deliver on his promises being demonstrated in your day-to-day life? We are going to see throughout these examples that faith in the Lord led these heroes of their faith to live their lives differently, led them to take risks, to make sacrifices, to live for the world to come, not this world. How are you living a life of faith? What does it look like for you? Brothers and sisters, the Lord is calling us to be men and women of faith, to wholly trust in him, to take him at his word, to believe that the gospel is true and that he will deliver on all his promises. He is calling us to greater faith. May that be the case. May we be ever growing in our faith. And may the evidence of our faith be seen in our daily lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for calling us to greater faith through your word. We pray, Lord, that you would 
Help us to respond. We pray that we will repent of our sin, repent of our unbelief. Lord, we all have doubts. We all struggle with that at times. We know you're gracious. We know you're merciful. We know you're patient. Lord, but we just pray we will not pre presume upon your patience, but rather that we will turn to you, believe in you, take you at your word, and live our lives accordingly, regardless of the cost, regardless of how that makes us look in the eyes of the world. May we be bold. May we be confident. May we trust in you. Lord, we pray that we will be a body of believers characterized by great faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.